Life, if you think about it, is full of journeys. Just think about your average week or your average year. Life is full of journeys. And some of them, granted, are more exciting than others. Sometimes you're just going out to the shop to get some milk. Other times you're off on a glamorous foreign holiday. Sometimes it's your dreary commute to work. Other times it might just be driving home for Christmas. Often our journeys are small and insignificant, but sometimes our journeys can be magnificent and epic. Some of the best stories, I think, are built around journeys as well. Around the world in 80 days, The Hobbit, Journey to the Center of the Earth, Gulliver's Travels, just be adding all these to your reading list, The Horse and His Boy, The Wizard of Oz, The Odyssey, The Incredible Journey. There's just something inherently exciting about certain journeys. But I'm convinced that there is no journey, real or fictional, that's as epic or exciting as the one that's recorded for us in the book of Exodus that we get to look at this morning and this month. Now, Exodus picks up uh, right from the end of the book of Genesis, unsurprisingly. It picks up the storyline, the ongoing story from the book of Genesis. And as we saw when we read through that book together a few months ago, Genesis packs a lot in. There's God's creation of everything. Then man's devastating and ruinous sin. Then God's great rescue plan for the whole world to save a people through Adam and through his descendants. All the way through to Joseph being raised up in Egypt as Pharaoh's second in command and all Joseph's family coming to settle with him in Egypt. Now, the next four books of the Bible after Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, continue the story of Abraham's descendants from that time that they first settled in Egypt with Joseph all the way through in the book of Deuteronomy to just before they're entering into the promised land, the promised land of Canaan. Now, Exodus itself contains three defining moments in Israel's history. First of all, God's miraculous rescue of his people from slavery. Secondly, God's covenant with his rescued people. And thirdly, God himself coming to dwell with his people. So to help us get a feel for the book of Exodus this morning and get to grips with its message, I'd like us to look at it in each of those three stages as we go along. First of all, God's rescue, then God's covenant, and then God's dwelling place. We're going to spend probably the most time, I think, on the first one. First up then, God's rescue. This is, uh, this is Exodus chapter 1 to 18 out of 40 chapters in the book in all. God's rescue. The book opens by telling us that many years have passed since Joseph arrived in Egypt, nearly 400 years in fact. Joseph has, of course, died and so have all of his family and all of that generation, but their descendants are thriving. In chapter 1, verse 7, we read, The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And we're going to see in that verse, in that language, the language of Genesis chapter 1. God's blessing on Adam was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And it's now actually being fulfilled through Israel. Things are looking good for God's people and God's promises, but not for long. A new king of Egypt has arisen, we're told, who doesn't remember Joseph and who, who views this rapidly multiplying 
people of Israel as a threat rather than a blessing. And so he ruthlessly oppresses them and turns them into slaves. But, verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And so next, Pharaoh orders the Hebrew midwives to kill every new baby boy that is born to Hebrew mothers. His plan is to cut off this troublesome people at the root. But the midwives, who in an important detail fear God, refuse and trick Pharaoh. And so next, Pharaoh commands that the whole nation drown every Hebrew baby boy in the River Nile. It is horrific when you think about it. We're only one chapter in, but already we can see that Pharaoh is one of the most wicked characters in the Bible so far. He is a living demonstration of what ultimately happens when humanity turns its back on God. Taking up the legacy of Adam, who who ate that tree in the garden from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Pharaoh has made himself the determiner of what is good and evil. Killing helpless, innocent babies has become good and justifiable in his eyes, which actually should be a sobering reflection for the world of easy abortion that we live in today as well. The times are very dark. But in the darkness, we find, as always, as we're just coming to expect now, that God is sovereignly at work to bring about his redemptive light. One particular mother, in an effort to save her baby boy, takes a basket. Literally, the word is ark. It's the only other place in the scriptures that this word ark appears than it, than, uh, alongside the story in Genesis 6. And this mother lays her child in it placing it among the reeds by the riverbank. And so, like Noah in the midst of the flood, the baby Moses is protected from destruction in a miniature ark. And he's quickly found and raised by none other than the Pharaoh's own daughter. And so with divine irony, the man who God will one day use to defeat Pharaoh's wickedness grows up right there in Pharaoh's house as a privileged Egyptian and a member of his household. Until one day, when Moses is nearly 40, he chooses to side with his people when he sees an Egyptian being attacked by... uh, when he sees one of his people being attacked by an Egyptian. By the end of chapter 2, Moses has murdered an Egyptian, fled out to the desert, married a Midianite woman, and had a son of his own, And 40 more years pass in Egypt with Moses just completely out of the picture. But though Moses is out of the picture, God is never out of the picture. And Exodus 2.23 tells us, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And so God appears to the now 80-year-old Moses. I don't think we've got any 80-year-olds with us this morning. Appears to this 80-year-old man in a burning bush and calls him to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let God's people go. Now, it's really important to notice here, up front, who it is that's doing the rescuing. 
Moses is this escaped elderly outlaw living in the desert, and he's no Clint Eastwood either. He's a most unlikely candidate for the role of deliverer of Israel. But that's intentional, because we're meant to be in no doubt that God himself will be the deliverer of Israel. And so it is God who appears to the elderly Moses in the burning bush. It is God who reveals his name to Moses, Yahweh, or translated Lord, with those little small caps in our Bibles. I am who I am. It is God who has seen the affliction of his people and intends to deliver them by his mighty power. It is God who knows the end from the beginning and tells Moses ahead of time that Pharaoh's going to resist you, but I will stretch out my mighty hand over Egypt and work such wonders that Pharaoh will be forced to let the people go. And when Moses then goes and announces the Lord's plans to the Israelites in chapter 4, they believe that the Lord is indeed coming to rescue them. And they bow their heads and worship. But all of this, these first four chapters, are just the build-up to the big confrontation that's about to take place that begins in chapter 5. And it's not ultimately going to be a confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. It's going to be a confrontation between Moses' God and Pharaoh and his gods. Egypt was probably the uh, greatest kingdom on earth at this time. Wealthy, powerful, proud, a lot like the world we live in today. And its gods were considered correspondingly great. Egypt was great and its gods were great. But the time has come for the one true God to reveal his superior greatness. The Exodus is, if you want to look at it like this, a battle of the gods. And right at the beginning of the contest, Pharaoh uh, contemptuously asks Exodus 5, verse 2, Who is this Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? But soon he will get an answer. The Exodus is designed to answer this very question. Who is the Lord? And it will answer it in a way which will be a lesson to all people everywhere. As God himself tells Pharaoh in 9 verse 16, For this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And again and again throughout this book, and look out for this as, we, as you read it this month, God tells us that his ultimate purpose in all that he's doing is to reveal who he is, to exalt his glory and so be proclaimed in all the earth. So the, the battle lines are drawn. The battle begins with God commanding and Pharaoh refusing to let the people go. And so God begins to send the plagues one by one. Each of the plagues confronting Pharaoh and one of his Egyptian gods. And with each plague, God offers Pharaoh the chance to repent. And each time we're told that Pharaoh's heart is hardened, he will not let God's people go. And so the plagues gradually escalate. escalate. They, get, they get worse and worse. They build in intensity. The first three affect the water and the ground. As the Nile turns to blood and frogs swarm up from the water and the dust of the earth is turned into gnats. The next three plagues strike living flesh with swarms of flies and dead animals and then human skin covered in horrible boils. 
And then the third group of plagues target the skies. It's like God's working his way all the way through Pharaoh's house. Targeting the skies, bringing hailstorms, locusts, and then the sun itself being blotted out for three days. Each plague strikes at the heart of Egyptian idolatry and pride. And together the plagues uh, unmask, they reveal the falseness of the Egyptians' gods. There is only one true God, and the Lord is his name. And the climax of it all comes with the tenth plague. The death of the firstborn son, the the night of the Passover. Now what happens next I think is really the heart of the Exodus story. A moment to be remembered and commemorated by all the future generations of Israel with this annual Passover meal that gets, gets introduced here in these chapters. Because God's final judgment is going to fall on the land of Egypt. Exodus 11 verse 4 says, So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. So every firstborn in Egypt is going to die. But God also provides a way of escape for his people. He tells every Israelite household to sacrifice a young spotless lamb and to paint some of its blood on the door frames of their houses. Exodus 12 verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The Israelite families that night were not saved by their own personal godliness or their own good behavior. They were not even saved by how much faith they had in God. They were simply saved by the fact that there was blood over the house. And we've been taught, we're being taught an important lesson here. Redemption from slavery and rescue from God's judgment is only possible through the blood of a lamb. And the Passover, of course, foreshadows a much greater rescue to come. All of the ingredients, uh, the divine judgment, the darkened sky... The sacrificial lamb and the trusting in shed blood, it all vividly points us forward to the ultimate Passover at the cross of Christ. And uh, two authors, Alistair Roberts and Andrew Wilson, write this. Jesus is the firstborn son who dies in the climactic divine judgment under a darkened sky. Jesus is the Passover lamb whose bones are preserved from being broken and whose blood proclaims freedom rather than condemnation. Jesus is the angel of the Lord who goes before us, forging a path through the deep so that we might pass through on dry land. Jesus is the one who outwits and overcomes the great dragon in an almighty showdown, drowning death in death at the very point when our enemy presumes he has triumphed. Jesus is the one who establishes a new covenant in his blood, sealed in a covenant meal 
and invites everyone to join him. That's where this story of the Passover is pointing us. And the point of the Passover story for you and I today is simple. Believe in Christ. That's the point of the story. Believe in Christ. If you've never done so before, you could turn and trust in Christ today. As it says on uh, those sheets that we got to take home and they'll help us as the month goes on. Those who turn to Jesus are washed and justified by his blood. Because he alone can rescue us from slavery and judgment and death. Jesus himself invites you to turn to him today. Well, back to the Exodus. Finally, Pharaoh agrees to let God's people go. And a crowd now of about two million people follow Moses up out of Egypt. But even now, having lost his own son in the plague, Pharaoh changes his mind again. This is how hard his heart is towards God. And he makes one last ditch attempt to destroy them all. And so as the Israelites pass through the Red Sea, Pharaoh and his army follow them in. Chapter 14, verse 23, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Now, this is the God that we meet in the pages of Exodus. The great I am. The one who fights for his people. The one who atones for their sin. The one who is sovereign even over chariot wheels getting stuck in the mud. The one who is victorious above all other gods. And when God's people sing in what's actually the first hymn of the Bible... In chapter 15, they sing about God's victory. They sing their hearts out about his victory over Pharaoh, over his armies, and over his gods. And it's called the Song of the Sea, because they've just come out of the sea. And as one commentator describes it, the song retells in poetry what the story of God's kingdom is all about. It's about how God is on a mission to confront evil in his world, and to redeem those who are enslaved to evil. God is going to bring his people into the promised land where his divine presence will live among them. This story is what it looks like when God becomes king over his people. What a king we have in the Lord. And again, one of the most repeated themes in the book of Exodus is that there is no one like our Lord. And he wants the whole earth Ultimately, to know him and to trust him and to be restored to a relationship with him. But the rescue for the Israelites isn't over yet. We're only halfway through. And as they begin to hike on through the wilderness on the way to Mount Sinai, they soon begin to grumble. And maybe if you've got kids and you ever have to take them on a walk out to the shops, you can relate to what this is like as they start to grumble. All it takes is a little hunger and thirst and they begin to complain. And they actually begin to complain against God for rescuing them. And as mad as it sounds, they start to look back with fondness on the good old days of slavery in Egypt. And God responds mercifully. And he, he gives them food and water, showing himself not only to be their rescuer, but also their provider 
and their protector. But their grumbling is, is, I think, is meant to worry us as readers. Could it be that those who've just been rescued from hard-hearted, rebellious Pharaoh also have hard, rebellious hearts? And the answer is going to slowly unfold through the book and through the Old Testament story. Uh, But I like what uh, Roberts and Wilson write here. They say, escaping from Egypt is actually only the first half of the Exodus. It is easy for us to forget this in an age where freedom is understood as merely being freedom from, from oppression, from constraint or whatever. This aspect of liberation, as wonderful as it is, is only half the deal. In the scriptures, more emphasis is placed on the freedom for, for worship, for flourishing, freedom for growth in obedience and joy and glory. Human beings are not designed to be free from all constraint, slaves to nothing but our own passions, triumphantly enthroned as our own masters or even our own gods. Everybody serves something. So the point of the Exodus is not just for Israel to find deliverance from serving the old master. It is for them to find delight in serving the new one. And so Moses brings the Israelites to the foot of Mount Sinai to receive God's covenant. It's our second chunk, our second point, second part of Exodus this morning. God's covenant. This is chapters 19 to 24. Here God is going to officially now invite them into a relationship with him. And as he does so, by giving them his law, we also begin to see how another of of God's great promises to Abraham is going to be fulfilled. I don't know if you remember, in Genesis 12, God promised Abraham that one day through his descendants, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. And now God tells Israel that if they obey the covenant that he's making with them, they will become like a kingdom of priests. Meaning that they will become God's representatives, and so show all of the other nations what God is really like. And this covenant, this law, sums up what it looks like to live as God's redeemed people, what it looks like to be his treasured possession. It begins, of course, with the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, which address the, just the very foundations of their relationship with God and their relationship with each other. And then God gives them the book of the covenant in chapters 21 to 23, which give more specifics on what the Ten Commandments would look like lived out in daily life. And it's helpful to notice that all of the laws given in Exodus are relational ones. They focus on Israel's relationship with God and with one another. And it's also important to realize that God's laws are not random God is uh, not simply picking them out of a hat. Oh, which ten laws shall I pick and throw out to the Israelites today? He's not doing a lucky dip at the fair. They reveal his own holy character. He wants a rescued people who reflect his character. They've been rescued to reflect, especially in the midst of a world that has turned its back on God and doesn't know God. He has set them free to increasingly look like him and love like him. And so these commandments still have great value for us today in showing us not only what our God is like, but also what he wants us, his people, to be like. The problem is, as we're going to see again very shortly, God's commandments on their own are not 
actually able to save us from our own sinful hearts. For that, we're going to need something far greater than Moses and the law. But the giving of God's law and the giving of God's covenant at Sinai is still a moment of great hope as God's plan to rescue the world is moving another step forward in the story. So Moses writes down all of the laws and he brings them to the people who agree in chapter 24. They agree to enter into this covenant relationship with the God who saved them. And then God reveals that he's going to take another step forward in his relationship with them. He's actually going to live with them. He's actually going to live with them, which brings us to our third and final section, God's dwelling place. This is chapters 25 to 40. Now, this last section actually breaks up, I think, quite nicely into three parts, three stages. 25 to 31, chapters 25 to 31, are full of detailed instructions about the materials and the furnishings for something called the tabernacle, which is like a sacred tent or a sanctuary. Now, at first glance, these seven chapters can read a bit like just technical blueprints, which unless you're an architect or uh, you do whatever Ash does, his impressive job, uh, Ash, you might enjoy this. Uh, it can sound a bit technical, just like building blueprints. Coupled with that, the content is largely repeated again in chapters 35 to 40 as the tabernacle and its furnishings actually go ahead and get built. But what mustn't happen, though, this month for us is for the detail and the repetition to derail us in our reading. We don't want that to happen. The first and the biggest help when reading these chapters is to recognize exactly what the tabernacle is for and how it fits into the bigger story. Well, what is it for? Just have a look at chapter 25, verse 8. This is an amazing verse. God says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. The tabernacle is to be the place where God himself will dwell in the midst of his people. This is an incredibly profound step forward in redemptive history. God had once walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He had spoken to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He'd, He'd even visibly visited Abraham. But for the very first time ever, he's actually going to live and make his home amongst his people. From this moment on, God will actually have a dwelling place on earth. First it will be the tabernacle, then it will be the temple, then one day the very Son of the Father, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. But it all begins here. That's how the tabernacle fits into the bigger story. And if we remember that as we read these chapters, then we'll find them so much more thrilling to read. And the second way to not be derailed in our reading is to recognize that every single detail in the design of the tabernacle is important, it's significant in the structure itself, in the furniture that's inside, even in the the, the clothing that is uh, prescribed for the priest to wear. Every piece is of symbolic value with many of the details either echoing right back to the Garden of Eden or onwards to the person and work of Christ. Or even beyond that, to the coming of the Spirit in the church. And finally on again to the picture of the new heaven and the new earth that we find in the book of Revelation. If we study these chapters on the tabernacle and uh, suddenly lots of other parts of the Bible 
come alive to us and will deepen in significance for us. Now, we can't go into all of the symbolism now this morning, but you might like to find a helpful commentary or helpful guide to accompany you as you read through those chapters this month. The important symbolism is also why God charges Moses four times to build everything exactly according to the pattern that God has given him. This isn't like the haphazard way that you and I might put up a tent on a camping holiday. Uh, perhaps when you set up a tent, there's always a pole or a guy rope that's left over, but you, you know, who cares? As long as the tent keeps the rain off, you're happy. It's just a tent. But this is not just a tent. This is a vivid, three-dimensional reminder of something incredible, that God intends to dwell with his people, which makes the events of the next three chapters all the more devastating when in chapters 32 to 34, Israel breaks the covenant. Now, the irony here is just awful. Even as Moses has been up the mountain receiving God's instructions for the tabernacle, down below, what started out earlier on as just some grumbling and complaining has evolved into full-blown idolatry. Aaron, the one who was set aside to be the high priest, no less, leads the people in making and worshipping a golden calf. And the people see it and they proclaim, chapter 32, verse 4, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This is like committing adultery on your honeymoon. It is terrible. At the very time when God has tenderly drawn his people to him and made them his own and is intending to live with them, they betray him in the most shocking fashion and immediately break the first, of the, two, the first two commandments in one fell swoop. And God sees and knows what they're doing. And he tells Moses that he intends now to destroy them. But Moses intercedes for the people. And I think surely what's happening here is not that God is being fickle, that he's changing his mind all the time, but he's testing Moses and creating in him another foreshadowing of a much greater mediator who will one day come. Well, in his intercession, Moses doesn't make excuses for their sin, but instead he appeals to God's promises and character. And in the mercy of God, God relents. He forgives them and he promises to preserve them, but he will no longer personally go with them. Exodus 33, verse 3, I will not go up among you, for you are a stiff-necked people. But Moses, and actually all of the people now as well, are devastated at this news. God says he's going to, they're going to be led into the promised land. All of those promises will come to them. But one thing that's not going to happen is he's not going to go with them. And they are devastated at hearing this news. Moses especially recognizes how terrible a loss this would be. Uh, chapter 33, verse 15, And Moses said to God, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going, in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? It's actually a really interesting question. What would you say is the number one thing that distinguishes God's people from all the other peoples of the earth. And we might say, oh, it's their beliefs, or it's their behavior, or it's their worship, or it's their character, or a whole lot of other things, and they're all important things. 
But the number one thing that distinguishes God's people here, the very heart of what it means to be his people, is God's special presence with them. And seeing how the people have actually understood this and grasped this, God relents and promises that in fact his presence will go with them after all. He renews his covenant with them in spite of their sin. And then in what is surely another high point in the book, he reveals his name and his character to Moses with a vividness that we've never before seen in the pages of the Bible. Chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. What this means, when you again stop and think about it, is that God will be faithful to his promises even though it means committing himself to a sinful people. It's what one writer calls the ultimate riddle of the Old Testament. How can God both forgive iniquity and sin and yet not leave the guilty unpunished? The book of Exodus doesn't give us a proper answer. It just begs the question. It's a tension left out there to be resolved another time, although we've had some clues and the biggest hint of all in the Passover already. Well, finally, in chapters 35 to 40, Moses builds the tabernacle. And like before, there are several more uh, long chapters filled with details about this tabernacle. But again, don't get switched off by the repetition. Think what this means. God really will dwell with his people. He will tabernacle himself amongst them. He's going to do it. But there's more mystery and tension here too. Uh, On the one hand, the tabernacle represents God's dwelling amongst them. Right in the middle of the Israelites' camp, God's going to be there with them. And yet inside the tabernacle, sacrifices are to be repeatedly made for the sins of the people. Vividly contrasting his holiness and their sinfulness. And reminding them continually that their sin still separates them from truly living with their God. Then in the very last chapter, God's glorious presence comes down. And the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle, taking the form of a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Chapter 40, verse 38. It's a constant visible reminder that the Lord is with them wherever they go. It's an awe-inspiring moment. It's full of hope and promise. But then we're told that even Moses is not able to enter the tent. He can't go in. The glory of the Lord is there in their midst, but they still can't actually enter his presence. And as the guys from the Bible Project put it, I love this, uh, they say, and that's how the book ends. It's really surprising, but not really if you think about it. You can see now how much Israel's sin has damaged the relationship with God in more ways than we realized. The book opened, remember, with Pharaoh's evil threatening Israel and threatening God's covenant promise. But now as the book ends, Israel has become its own worst enemy. It's their sin that's threatening the future of the covenant. And so the question as the book closes is, 
How is God going to reconcile this conflict between his holiness and goodness and presence with the sinful corruption of his own covenant people? The solution to that problem is what the next book is about. Look forward to Leviticus sometime soon. But for now, they say that's the book of Exodus. But just before we finish, I just want to say a few more words about this book in light of the Bible's bigger story. Exodus is the, um, the foundational redemption story in the Old Testament. As we've seen it, it tells the story of God delivering his people from bondage and slavery and then making a covenant with them and, uh, so that they can become the people of his presence. And from that day forward, it became for Israel the brightest display of God's power to save his people. And so the Exodus is referred to again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. In the history books and the the poetry and the prophets, it's everywhere as a reminder of God's matchless might and marvelous grace. Of his guidance and his provision, his faithfulness and even his condescension in making a way to dwell with his people. But it is no longer the brightest display of God's power to save. And even as we've got the privilege of looking back on Exodus this coming month, we'll find it continually pointing us forward through the scriptures to a day of deliverance that was greater by far. The greatest rescue for sinners from slavery and death is no longer the Passover of Egypt, but the Passover of Calvary. Jesus Christ is the ultimate redeemer of his people. The Lord himself, who condescended to dwell amongst us by actually becoming a man. He is the true Passover lamb, who secured by his own blood the the eternal salvation for all who put their trust in him, leading us out of darkness and raising us to new life in him, writing his law, not on stone tablets up on a mountain somewhere, but on each of our hearts as he comes to dwell in us by his Holy Spirit. All power, all grace, all guidance, all provision, all faithfulness, righteousness, and wisdom is found in Jesus. All that we need is in him. And that's the message of Exodus.